Hello, and welcome to the sermon podcast of First Baptist Church of Versailles, Missouri. It is our hope that the following message will help you grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. For more teachings, please visit our sermon page at fbcversailles.com. Mark chapter 10, verses 32 through 45. They were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. The disciples were astonished, but those who followed him were afraid. Taking the twelve aside, he began to tell them the things that would happen to him. See, we are going up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be handed over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death. Then they will hand him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him. And he will rise after three days. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, approached him and said, Teacher, we want you to do whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you? He asked them. They answered him, Allow us to sit at your right and your left in your glory. Jesus said to them, You don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? We are able, they told him. Jesus said to them, You will drink the cup I drink and you will be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with, but to sit at my right or left is not mine to give. Instead, it is for those whom it has been prepared. When the ten disciples heard this, they began to be indignant with James and John. And Jesus called them over and said to them, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those in high positions act as tyrants over them. But it is not so among you. On the contrary, whoever wants to become great among you will be your servant, and whoever wants to be first among you will be slave to all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. had a recent conversation um, where it caused me to think back through my life, recalling what I call life-changing moments or life-defining moments. These are moments in time that have defined me as a person, maybe even defined my generation. And I remember a few things that have affected me. I don't don't remember actually seeing it, but I remember hearing everybody talk about the space shuttle Challenger exploding back in the 80s. The first Gulf War in 1990, the flood, the Great Flood of 93. The O.J. Simpson White Bronco Chase. I remember watching that live on TV. The Oklahoma City bombing in 1995. The first major school shooting in Columbine, Colorado in 1999. The great terrorist attack on 9-11, which was followed by the Iraq War. Not to mention the Virginia Tech shooting in 2006, the Great Recession of 2007, and of course, the coronavirus of 2019 and 2020, and maybe 2021. We'll see what happens. Now, it hasn't all been bad. Uh, I got to see the Hubble Space Telescope launched into space in 1990. The Internet was born in 1991. The iPod replaced cassette tapes and CDs in 2001. And who can forget Google in 1998? Google has changed our lives, hasn't it? 
And the Royals won two World Series in my lifetime, although the first one that they won, I was barely knee-high to a grasshopper. It's very young. Personal events like my dad being gone for a long time in the first Gulf War, the death of my grandfather, learning to drive in 2000, God calling me into full-time ministry that same year, graduating from high school, graduating from college, and graduating from seminary twice, becoming a youth pastor, getting married to Ashley, moving to Versailles, and this weekend actually celebrates the one-year anniversary of my new tick-borne illness. I had my first allergic reaction at the Apple Festival last year, first weekend of October. Now, each one of us probably has events in our lives that we can look back on and realize that that thing that happened that day changed everything. And nothing would be the same again. Sometimes it was a small change, and other times it was a large change. But either way, a change occurred. And the way that we lived was changed, the way that we acted was changed, even the way that we thought was changed. Of all the events I mentioned, there's one that I didn't mention, but it has affected my entire life. It changed me at the core of who I am, and because of it, I will never be the same. It happened on the 16th of August in 1992, and that's when I confessed Jesus as Lord. I became a Christian that day, and I haven't been the same ever since. I believe that the passage that we are going to be looking at today holds such a moment for James and John, and for the disciples, and for us, really. There are questions that this verse raises that the answers will change our life forever. Like, what does discipleship look like, and what form does it take, and How will the gospel change you? Well, in our text today, Jesus, for the third time, predicts his death. And did you notice that the description of the attitude of the disciples and those that were following him, did you see what it said about them? There was a sense of awe, there was a sense of wonder about Jesus And the disciples up to this point have struggled with exactly what Jesus was teaching them about his death. But they knew enough to know that with Jesus leading out front, it says Jesus was out in front of them, with Jesus leading out front, that Jesus was actually leading his way to his death. And they were amazed by it. They were astounded by it. Others who were likely on their pilgrimage to Jerusalem because it was time for the feast of Passover and you made your pilgrimage to Jerusalem they could feel the gravitas of the moment and the events that were surrounding Jesus on his journey. What a strange mix of emotions, amazement and fear. But this isn't the first time that we've seen such different emotions when it comes to Jesus Christ. In fact, one of our favorite hymns as Christians contains just this mix In Amazing Grace, there's a line. It says, Grace has taught my heart to fear, and grace, my fears relieved. Now, we've already spent time in the two previous passages looking at Jesus' prediction of his death back in chapter 8, verse 31, in chapter 9, verse 30, and now here in chapter 10, verse 32. 
And this prediction not only includes the details that were mentioned in the previous two predictions, but it actually adds more detail to it. We're told that Jesus will be betrayed and handed over to the chief priests and scribes, that he'll be condemned to die, he'll be handed over to the Gentiles, where he will be mocked, spit on, and flogged, or scourged, depending on your translation, same thing though, killed, and rise after three days. This phrase, handed over, it's the same phrase that's used in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 12, in what they call the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, where it says, His soul was handed over to death, bearing the sins of many. And not only are we told more about who will condemn him, the chief priests and scribes, And those who will kill him, the Gentiles, we are also given a glimpse into the brutality of his death. He would be mocked, he would be spat on, and he would be flogged. Flogging or scourging was a common practice that was tied to crucifixion. The hands of the person to be flogged would be tied together and tied down to a stake low to the ground. And then a whip about two feet long, made with pieces of rock and metal and bone embedded in the ends of the leather straps, was used to beat the prisoner across their back, tearing flesh and ripping through muscle with every strike. In addition to the lacerations on his back, some people lost their eyes or their teeth They got knocked out, and many people died from the beating alone. It was brutal. It was barbaric. But I think that the most incredible part about this description of Jesus' death is that He's accepted it. He's accepted it. He knows that this is His purpose, that this is His destiny. The death of Jesus is not some surprise to Him. And it was no accident that it happened. In fact, we are told in the Scriptures that it was the plan of God before the foundation of the world. That the Son of God would die in the place of sinners in order to save them from their sin. Romans chapter 4.25 He was delivered up for our trespasses and raised up for our justification. Romans 8.32, He did not even spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all. We must never forget that God purposefully killed His Son so that He would not kill us. Jesus was delivered or He was handed over so that the will and the plan of God would be accomplished. The ransoming of many. But death would not be the end. After three days, He would rise again. Jesus would overcome death and gloriously be resurrected. Dr. S.M. Lockridge, a pastor in Southern California in the middle of the last century, said, in a, they're not quite sure if it's a sermon or a prayer that he gave, but it was in 1976, and he said these words that I think are very appropriate about our King Jesus. He says, The Pharisees couldn't stand Him, but they found out they couldn't stop Him. Herod couldn't kill him, death couldn't handle him, and the grave couldn't hold him. Jesus knew 
what he was headed for. He knew what awaited him in Jerusalem. And he accepted it because he knew what the outcome would be. The salvation of many souls. Now I want to make sure that you have this scene squarely planted in the, in the picture of your mind. Jesus is on his way with the twelve up to Jerusalem and he's walking out ahead of them. And then he calls them close for some teaching about what was going to happen to him when he arrived in Jerusalem, that he'd be killed. And then, have you ever, have you ever been embarrassed for somebody else? Has that ever happened to you before? You've been embarrassed for somebody else? They do something so stupid or so embarrassing that like they're embarrassed by it, but like you're even more embarrassed for them that they have done that thing. Let me give you an example. When I was a kid, at, we'd go to church camp in the summer, and every year the same guy would come. He played guitar, lead us in songs. He was a great guy, fantastic guitar player, great singer, but he was blind. And that's not a problem necessarily. The kids had fun leading him around camp, and he'd share verses of Scripture with them. You could ask him like, what he had for lunch on the day that you were born, and he remembered it. I don't know how, but he always remembered it. And I tested him too. Because I'd ask him every year, and he always said the same thing. Because I, I thought that he, no, there's no way that he could remember. But he said the same thing every time. Anyway, that's not even part of the sermon. We're sitting in the chapel with a missionary there telling us about their, what they do. And they had pictures, of course, because, you know, with little children, you have to have something extra to keep their attention. And so... Phil is, his name's the guitar player's Phil, the blind guitar player's name's Phil. Phil's sitting on the front pew, and I'm sitting in the next pew back, just a little off to the side. Almost right behind it, but not quite. And they're handing the pictures around, and, and you know, us kids, we're just passing them to the next person and looking at them and passing them. And then the girl sitting next to Phil looks at the picture and then holds it out. And then she gets another picture, and she puts that with the first one, and then she holds it out again, and there's another picture on the way, so she's waiting for that one, and puts that one in her hand and holds it out. But the dude's blind. He can't even, can't even see that she's holding the picture out, let alone look at the picture that she's trying to hand him. And she finally realizes what she's done, and her face turns red. And we were a little embarrassed for her, but then we laughed really hard. I've got to be honest with you. <laughs> But it's embarrassing. You know, we get, it's called secondhand embarrassment. Secondhand embarrassment. And that's what I feel whenever I read this encounter with John and James and Jesus. They're like Peter in the passage before this one. They don't quite get it yet. They'll eventually get it, but not, not right now. And do you remember the nickname that Jesus gave these two brothers? Boanerges, which means sons of thunder, because their personalities were thunderous. And here, Jesus has just given this extraordinary announcement about his coming death and the resurrection that's going to take place in Jerusalem. Yet James and John seem oblivious to what's going on. You almost want to yell, Come on, Thunder Brothers, read the room. So they take Jesus off to the side and they say, Teacher, we want you to do whatever we ask. 
teacher, we want you to do whatever we ask of you. That's quite the prayer, isn't it? That's quite a prayer. Jesus, just do whatever we ask you to do. John Stott wrote about this. Surely this is the worst, most blatantly self-centered prayer that has ever been prayed. Jesus, just do... But, you know, we go, oh, yeah, that's, that's pretty bold and brash of these two brothers, these thunder brothers. But sometimes don't we pray like that? Jesus, will you just do what I've asked you to do? At this point, I don't think anybody would have a problem with Jesus taking the two brothers, grabbing them by the ears, and bonking their heads together like the three stooges. Saying, did you hear what I just said? I'm going to die. And all you can think about is some favor? This interaction tells us what a disciple should look like, and, and just as importantly, what a disciple should not look like. Now, you might remember this is the section of Mark where Jesus is teaching his disciples what it means to be a disciple, how to follow him, what he expects from those who are going to live their lives for him. And part of the reason this episode is recorded is to show us what not to do. Don't be like James. Don't be like John. Not here, at least. They had some nerve, some maybe courage, stupid courage, and a whole box full of self-promotion. And this isn't the first time that this has happened. Something similar happened just a chapter ago. They were also on the road that time too, but that time they were arguing with one another about who was the greatest. And then Jesus said, hey, what were you guys arguing about? And they're too embarrassed to tell Jesus what they had been arguing about, but they were arguing about who was the greatest disciple. And Jesus taught them at that point that the greatest disciple is the greatest servant. The greatest disciple is the greatest servant, but they haven't quite learned that lesson Have they? Jesus' words about his suffering, they just whistle right by them. They were so focused on what Jesus said in Mark chapter 8, verse 38. Here's what he said. The Son of Man will come into the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And they were like, glory? With an angelic host company? Awesome. That sounds fantastic. And they thought that since they were some of the first ones that were called, that they should be some of the first ones in the glory. Stott remarks, John Stott remarks, that our world and even the church is full of Jameses and Johns, go-getters, status seekers, hungry for honor and prestige, measuring life by achievements, and everlastingly dreaming of success. These disciples, they wanted glory, they wanted power, they wanted authority, they wanted strength and recognition, they wanted the first seats, and they wanted the honor that came with those. I mean, they worked really hard for Jesus, didn't they? They left their father's very successful fishing company, Zebedee and Sons Fishing. They left behind their family, and they left behind their wealth, and all the servants of their father's household. Luke chapter 9, verse 54, reports on a different occasion that while they were going through Samaria, there was a town where they didn't really like Jesus. And James and John asked Jesus, do you want us to call fire down from heaven and destroy all of them? And then in the last chapter, they came across a guy who was casting out demons in the name of Jesus. And they tried to stop him too, because they didn't want him to give Jesus a bad name. 
These brothers loved Jesus. And actually, Jesus loved these brothers. But they asked him to give them whatever they asked. And Jesus, who is ever patient and ever kind, obliges them and says, Well, what do you want? And they answered him, Allow us to sit at your right and your left in your glory. Somehow, and I don't know how, these boys believed that Jesus was there to meet their personal needs, to give them all the wildest dreams of their heart, to help them attain whatever selfish ambition that they had. And I'm just shaking my head wondering, what has Jesus said up to this point that makes you think that that's what he's here to do? In fact, every time they kind of get this little tinge of selfishness, Jesus, he hits it down like a -a whack-a-mole. Pow! Jesus, in fact, has instead taught them repeatedly that the greatest disciple is the greatest servant. And what James and John were doing was exactly what servanthood and discipleship was not about. Being a disciple of Jesus should never be about personal gain. So what should we look like if we want to be these servant disciples that Jesus is calling us to be? Well, Jesus has already taught them about it, but he's going to do it here again. We are to be servants. The greatest disciple is? The greatest servant. Let's try it again. The greatest disciple is? The greatest servant. Good, you're awake. Paul wrote this same thing of himself in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1. He says, A person should think of us in this way, as servants of Christ. He goes on to say, I think that God has displayed us in the last place, like men condemned to die. We've become a spectacle to the world. We are fools for Christ. We are weak. We are dishonored. We are reviled. We are persecuted. We are slandered. We are like the scum of the earth, like everyone's garbage. Check it out for yourself. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. That's how Paul describes himself. Servants don't think of themselves first. Paul's description, he's using the picture of the Roman army's victory parade. They would come off the battlefield after winning, and they would march up and down the streets of Rome, showing off what they had done. And in the very first place would be the generals and the men who were going to be made legends because of the battle. They were at the very front. And as they paraded through the streets, women and children would throw flowers and they would hang garland. And they had those wreaths that you see in the paintings, you know, of ancient Rome, those those, uh, leaf wreaths, and they'd throw them down as the crowns of those who had won the war. And then next would come the troops. And they would have carts that would be loaded down with all the spoils of the battle. And then... At the very back of the parade, the very, very end, was the prisoners of war, the leaders of the opposition army, and they would be chained and dragged through the streets to be embarrassed, and they were walking to their own executions. 
and then other other prisoners who would who would head to the arena to fight bears and lions and gladiators and one another. They truly made a spectacle of the whole thing. The men at the end, the ones who were beaten down, who had rotten food thrown at them along the parade route, the ones who were despised, the ones at the very last, Paul says, that's us. That's us. This kind of brings what James and John say and ask Jesus into a little bit sharper focus, doesn't it? Jesus has been pointing them to be servant disciples, and they want the glory that comes at the front of the parade. Jesus asks them what they want him to do for them, and they say, Give us the best seats the seats of honor, the seats of glory, the seats of power and authority. And seeing that they have asked a very embarrassing question, Jesus Jesus tries to let them off the hook. And first he says to them, you don't know what you're asking. And they should have answered no to this next question. They really should have. Here's the question that Jesus asked them. Are you able to drink the cup I drink or to be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? Absolutely, they said. We're able to do that. Oh, brothers, (laughs) this was a bad idea. And we should all have secondhand embarrassment for their answer. Jesus was saying that he was going to be betrayed, that he would be beaten and belittled and buried And they had no clue what they were talking about. They didn't even have an inkling of what Jesus was talking about. And they made a huge miscalculation when they said, sure, we can do that. They weren't able to do it. They couldn't. Jesus had to pay the price. And he had to do it first. Jesus talks about a cup. And he talks about a baptism. The cup is connected to the Old Testament. It's an allusion to the wrath of God in Isaiah and Jeremiah, which talks about the wrath of the Lord being poured out. It's His holy condemnation against sin and unrighteousness. It's the same cup that Jesus would play with, pray with blood as drops of sweat in the Garden of Gethsemane in Mark chapter, or Matthew chapter 26 when He says, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from Me. It's the cup of God's wrath. It's a cup of God's anger against sin, and it's the cup that Jesus would drink to the very last drop, shielding those who trusted in Him from the wrath of God, taking it all onto Himself. He would take our place. We deserve the unyielding, unending, furious wrath of God and His judgment against our sin. But Jesus took on our sin. He took on our unrighteousness. He took our guilt and our shame and our punishment. And He had the full, unreserved wrath of God poured out upon Him when He was on the cross. And as He bore our sins, He cried out, My God, my God, why have You forsaken Me? The shattering effect of sin had reached its final blow. And we can't even begin to imagine what it must have been like. Jesus, forsaken by His Father, whom He had spent 
eternity connected to. As he took the place of foolish sinners who were condemned to die in the last place, dying for those who are weak and dishonored and reviled and persecuted and slandered, dying for the scum of the earth, the garbage, the beaten down. And he asked James and John, can you drink that cup? Can you drink that cup? You can't even bear the cup of your own sin and guilt. You can't even, be, you can't even stand up to the just punishment of the wrath of God for your own sin. How are you going to do that for another person, James? How will you bear that for the millions and millions of sinners, John? All of their collective guilt, all of their collective punishment, all in one cup of God's wrath to be poured out on Jesus Christ. It's Jesus and Jesus alone that can bear up under that kind of wrath. And it's Jesus and Jesus alone that can stand for us before a holy and righteous God. Can you drink that cup? Sure we can, they said. But they can't. So Jesus adds another metaphor about baptism. And we usually think about the celebration of baptism. We think about it as a happy time when someone has given their life to Christ and they're showing that by being, by being buried with him in baptism and raised to walk a brand new life. But that's not the only way that baptism is used in the Bible. In fact, many times in the Old Testament and sometimes in the New Testament, it's used to describe someone who has been completely engulfed by their sorrow or by their trouble. We see it in in fact, in the story of Job, chapter 22, verse 11, he talks about being overwhelmed with sorrow, totally overcome by it. And so, when Jesus uses this word baptism, he's not talking about being sprinkled with a bit of suffering. He's talking about being completely immersed and engulfed by suffering, totally overcome by it. Just like the water engulfs and overcomes our bodies in baptism, so he will be engulfed in the pain and sorrow that is associated with our sin. And he asks them, will you share in this fate with me? Will you be doused with the waters of hardship and trial? Will you drink the cup of God's wrath? Jesus' twin metaphors of the cup and baptism signify his coming suffering and his coming death. And James and John, Jesus says, they'll suffer, but not now. Eventually, they will both die. James, by church tradition, tells us he was beheaded. And John, they tried to boil him alive in oil, but it didn't work. They exiled him to an island, and he was persecuted severely, but he he didn't end up dying because of... A martyrdom. The only disciple never to die of a martyrdom. They tried to martyr him though, but it didn't stick. Now, the other disciples were told are, that they overheard the conversation and they, my translation says, in, they became indignant, which means super angry. <laughs> they were burning with anger inside. And I think that it probably had less to do with the fact that James and John asked, but that they had not asked Jesus first. (laughs) They had been beaten to the punch by James and John, and they didn't like it. 
And Jesus, seeing what was going on, took this moment to teach them one more time about what discipleship ought to look like. You see, the disciples had taken pagan rulers, Gentile leaders, as their model for what, for what leadership ought to look like, but that what they needed to take on was the model that Jesus was giving them. In the world, greatness is achieved by asserting power. How many people does a man control? How many servants are at his command? Greatness in the world is all about power and about authority. But in contrast, Jesus says that his kingdom is nothing like that. In fact, submission and sacrifice are the marks of the truly great in the kingdom of God. The ones at the back of the parade. And just in case we thought we could wiggle out of some kind of service to God because he only uses the word servant, you're like, okay, servant, that's, you know, maybe I can kind of do whatever I want a little bit because a servant does have some free time. No, Jesus pegs us down and he goes, nope. You must be the servant and the slave of all. The slave of all. Those two words describe the attitude of the service that Jesus is calling us to, to be a servant and to be a slave. The problem that we have today is that people want to do as little as possible to get as much as possible, right? We do this when we go shopping. We're looking for a product and we're looking for the best product at the cheapest price, right? Yeah, that's what we do. We look for the best product at the cheapest price and then we by that. And people, unfortunately, that idea has crept into Christianity. And people want the best that God has to offer without having to pay the price. But it's only when we are filled with the desires to give more than we get that we truly find greatness in the kingdom of God. After all, Jesus said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Now, the way that Jesus, the way of Jesus is the way of self-giving sacrifice and service. It's about being less interested about being on the receiving end of service and more concerned about being on the giving end of service. Greatness for Jesus is not about subjecting other people to your service, but in lowering yourself to be the servant and slave of all. Jesus gives his life as an example for what he's talking about in verse 45, saying, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served. Jesus is the Son of God. He came from heaven and the glory of heaven. Jesus is God in the flesh. And he says, I didn't come to be served. I came to be, or but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. Jesus, again, quoting the Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 53, verse 10, when he's talking about being a ransom for many. A ransom is the payment that's made in order to obtain freedom for a prisoner or a slave. And here Jesus is saying that he's come to serve and not to be served and to give his life for many to pay the redemption, the price for their souls, and he's going to pay it in full. How much does it cost to free a soul that's in bondage to sin. Jesus says it costs his life. That's the price. 
the life of the Son of God to free your eternal soul. That's the whole reason that he came to earth. And you remember, Jesus kicks off this whole section on discipleship back in chapter 8, verse 37, asking the disciples a question, what can a man give in exchange for his soul? The psalmist tells us that man cannot pay the price. He cannot ransom his own soul because it costs too much. We cannot pay the ransom ourselves, but Jesus pays the price that others cannot pay for themselves. James and John didn't understand that the throne that Jesus was going to be taking on was not a throne of gold and a crown filled with jewels, but it was a a wooden throne in the shape of a cross with a crown of thorns on his head. And if they wanted to be his disciples, and if we want to be his disciples then we must deny ourselves, take up our crosses, and follow Him. It's about humility and sacrifice and service. And Jesus is our example of all three. So who is the greatest disciple? I'm not convinced. Who's the greatest disciple? The greatest servant. That's right. Now, James and John, they would eventually get it. In John's first letter, 1 John 3, verse 16, he writes this. This is how we have come to know love. He, meaning Jesus, laid down his life for us. We should also lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. He got it, didn't he? This is how we know what love is. He laid down his life for us. We should lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. I believe that this event that we've talked about today, this was the life-changing moment. This, coupled with the cross and the resurrection, changed these men's life. And this teaching of this message of service and love for other people through sacrifice of ourselves, that became central to their ministry as they shared the gospel with the world. In John's letters, over and over again, he would write, little children love one another. In fact, they would bring him in. As he was advancing years, he couldn't walk in. They carried him in on a chair, and they'd sit him up in the front of the service, and they would ask, John, do you have anything that you want to say? And he would always say, little children love one another. Little children love one another. And where did John learn This concept from Jesus. James and John, I think, are a mirror for us. I know that whenever I look at them, I see the selfishness, the self-centeredness, and the self-seeking attitudes in my own life. And I think, am am I much different than they are? Have I learned to sacrifice and serve like Jesus wants me to? You know, the good news about the kingdom of God is that anyone can be great in God's kingdom. Any, anyone can be great in God's kingdom because anyone can serve. 
You don't have to have college degrees in order to serve. You don't have to know perfect English grammar in order to serve. You don't have to be able to answer the deep theological and philosophical questions of the day in order to serve. You don't have to be a rocket surgeon in order to serve. There's only one requirement. To have a heart full of grace from a soul that is saved by Jesus. Anyone can be great because anyone can be a servant. And the greatest disciple is the greatest servant. Have you been saved by Jesus? If not, he tells us here that he can be your ransom. He can pay the price that you cannot pay. Your sin debt is much greater than you think that it is. And you can't rid yourself of it on your own. But Christ came to pay that price so that you could have forgiveness of your sins, freedom from the guilt and punishment. Jesus drank the whole cup of God's wrath so that we wouldn't have to even experience a drop of it. He can save your soul if you trust him today. And maybe you've already been saved. You've already put your faith and hope and trust in Jesus Christ alone. That's great. How's your service? Not like the, not like the cards at the restaurant that you fill out about how your service was. You're like, oh yes, uh, the sermon today, that was fantastic, that illustration that he used there at the beginning, and then turn that in. No, it's not how, how's your, how is your service? How are you serving? Jesus has called us to be servants. The greatest disciples are the greatest servants, the ones that sacrifice, the ones that, the ones that give more than they get, the ones who are at the back of the parade, the weak and the vulnerable. Those are the ones that are welcomed into the kingdom and that we should welcome into the kingdom. How is your service? Are you seeking yourself or are you seeking to serve others? Do you want to be great? Jesus doesn't, doesn't whack a mole on, on the head for wanting to be great. He just refocuses their energy on what makes somebody truly great. He says it's not what the world thinks. If you want to be great, that's awesome. Here's how to be great. Be the greatest servant. So if you want to be great in God's kingdom, here's how you do it. You become the greatest servant become the greatest servant. That's how you become great in God's kingdom. Become the greatest servant to Jesus and to one another. Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast of First Baptist Church of Versailles. We would love it if you joined us in person. Our services are Sunday at 1045 a.m. and Wednesday evening at 6 p.m. We are located at 211 East Jasper Street in Versailles, Missouri. For more sermon recordings, visit our sermon page at fbcversailles.com.